Kim um, is not feeling well this morning, but yet she has come to play the piano for us. And uh, We didn't know if she was going to be able to make it or not, but she did. So thank you, Kim, for uh, sacrificing and coming in and, and leading us uh, in, in music. So let me invite you to open your Bible with me. We are going to step away from the book of Romans for a week uh, as we uh, reflect on New Year's and a message God's laid on my heart that I hope will help set the tone for our church this year. We're going to be in the, in the book of Acts, chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn there. Acts chapter 13 will be in verses 1 through 12. Uh, spend most of our time in the first few verses and uh, then briefly touch on uh, the remainder. But it is New Year's, and uh, as happens typically, people make a lot of New Year's resolutions. And many of those have to do with getting physically healthy, eating right or exercising or or quitting smoking, uh, a lot of great uh, um, uh, great ideas. Uh, you see a lot of plans out there, a lot of diets people follow, and you get on Facebook and it seems like every other thing is an ad, uh, advertising some sort of exercise plan or diet plan. Uh, those things are out there, a lot of plans. Uh, several of you all have made uh, resolutions for spiritual health. Uh, you want to pray more, uh, want to be more active in the church, uh, reading the Bible through the year. Uh, many of you have pledged to do that, and I'm so excited about that, and, and I want to help get you started in the right direction on that. But have you stopped and considered church health? A resolution for our church here at Ephesus to be healthier. I believe we are a healthy church, and we're seeing the evidence of that uh, week after week. But as we know, you can always be healthier physically, but same is true spiritually. You can always grow in your faith, and we as a church can also grow in our spiritual health. Now, there's a lot of plans out there for a person to get physically healthy, but what about church health? What does that look like to have a healthy church? And Are there any plans out there that, that we could follow? Well, the simple thing is this. For Ephesus to reach its God-given potential, we must continually obey the voice of God. For us to be the church that God has called us to be and God desires us to be, we must continually obey the voice of God as found in the Word of God. And I want to look at a church this morning here in Acts chapter 13 that speaks about, I believe, a powerful paradigm for our church. If you would please stand with me if you are able. We do this out of reverence for the reading of God's holy Word. And I'll be reading from Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 1. And here Luke writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we do praise you for all that has transpired already this morning. Uh, wonderful fellowship, a great time of study and discipleship in your word during Sunday school. Uh, Father, for the worship we have already enjoyed today, the celebration of baptism, uh, the beautiful music, worship through giving, 
Uh, Lord, indeed, you have blessed us already today. And Lord, we want to continue that as we turn our focus to your word. And we want to allow you, God, to speak to us. So we come with a sense of reverence to your word, a sense of expectation, as Lord, we believe that as you speak, things happen. And today should be no different. And so, Lord, we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would touch our minds, our hearts, our lives. May we all become more like Christ as a result of your word's power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The book of Acts that we are in this morning follows in the New Testament right after the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of those four books take individual perspectives looking at the life, the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. Then we come to the book of Acts, titled uh, The Acts of the Apostles, and it's really uh, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. The book of Acts is about the, the growth of the early church and the spread of Christianity throughout the world. Now, as people study the book of Acts, theologians debate uh, over an issue uh, about whether the book of Acts is what they call formative or normative. Formative meaning that what happens in the book of Acts is narrative, it's story, and it relates only to the specific context of the start of the church. Uh, in other words, that what happens in Acts is not something uh, that is to be continued today. There were things happening in Acts that were unique to that time period. Those people would say that Acts is formative. Those who say Acts is normative say that there are things in the book of Acts that ought to be part of a normal Christian life. That everything you see there in Acts is normal and we should continue uh, on those patterns. Now, I believe that there's some truth in both of those things. There are things in Acts that, that strictly are formative, only about the formation of the church as related to that specific time and setting. However, there are parts of Acts that we ought to follow and emulate and indeed expect. I believe there are things in this particular text before us today, a little bit of things that are only formative, but the majority of this is normative and we ought to follow it and seek it as a normal part of being a healthy church. I believe that we find in this passage a powerful paradigm for our church, an example, a model for us to emulate. Ten things in this text today. First of all, I see the locality of the local church. might sound a bit redundant, but I think it's an important doctrine that we ought not to pass over the locality of the local church. Verse 1 says, There were at Antioch in the church that was there. Antioch is a city in modern-day Turkey. And we read about the founding of the church that was at Antioch in the book of Acts in chapter 11. Verse 19 through 26, we see, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, they made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word to no one except Jews alone. Now, what we read about in, in that is that sometimes God uses tribulation and difficulties to stretch us and to press us to where He wants us to be. Christians were being persecuted in Jerusalem, so they scattered, and wherever they went, they took the gospel with them. It is a beautiful thing. 
And it says that some of them came to Antioch, which is the city we're looking at today. Verse 20 says, There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, began speaking to the Greeks also and preaching the Lord Jesus. So in other words, they were taking the Gospels not only to those who were Jewish, but they began taking the Gospel to people who were not Jewish, Gentiles. Verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. God was honoring their evangelistic efforts, taking the good news to their community. The hand of the Lord was with them. A large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the church at Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas, one of the guys in our text today, off to Antioch. He arrived, witnessed the grace of God. He rejoiced, began to encourage them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. And Barnabas, he was a, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. He left for Tarsus to look for Saul, who later is called Paul. He's also in our text today. And it says, It brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. There's a little bit of Bible trivia there for you. The first people who were called Christians were in this church uh, in the city of Antioch. And we're looking at them today. And so what we see there, there was a church that was there, as there was a church that was at Jerusalem. When we read the New Testament, we see this thing called the doctrine of the church. What, what is the church? And, and really there's two aspects to it. You have the, what we call the universal church, the invisible church. That means all of the people of God throughout all of the ages, from all of uh, creation up till today and beyond, all the people of God in one body, everybody who has been saved by the blood of Jesus, regardless of when they lived or where they lived, are part of this universal thing, this body of Christ called the invisible church. However, the New Testament also speaks about something called the local church, the visible church, and this is uh, simply a local body of baptized believers in a covenant partnership to worship God, to recognize the ordinances of the church, baptism, Lord's Supper, and to fulfill the Great Commission. And so we read in the New Testament there were churches located in specific places with specific people at specific times. The local church, Ephesus Baptist Church, is a local church church. We're part of the universal church, all believers, but we are a local church. We are a visible manifestation of the body of Christ. The New Testament knows nothing of what we might call Lone Ranger Christianity. These are people who say, well, it's just me and Jesus. I don't need the church. I don't want the church. I just want to be saved by Jesus, and that's all that matters. Well, you don't need the church to be saved. That's true. But if you're saved, the New Testament says you should want the church. You should belong to a local church. All the believers in the New Testament were part of a local church. They were there, invested in that church, worshiping and serving in that church. The locality of the local church is a very important doctrine of the New Testament that we dare not let go of. We also see in verse 1 the authority in the local church. And a very important fact that comes out of here, godly leadership 
is always tethered to, tied to the Word of God. It was that way in the Old Testament. Prophets, priests, kings, all of their job descriptions, so to speak, involved the Word of God in some aspect. In the New Testament, the apostles, the elders, overseers, pastors, every office of leadership in Scripture is connected tightly to God's revealed Word. That was true there in the early church. It ought to be true in our church. We see two offices named there in verse 1. There was in the church that was there, located there, prophets and teachers. Prophets, there's one of those issues people debate. Is that title, is that office, is it only formative in the early church or is it normative? Should we have prophets today? Strictly speaking, a prophet is one who received brand new revelation from God. And as they receive that new revelation, that new information from God that's never been given before, as they receive that, they then proclaimed it. Now that we live when the Bible is completely finished, the canon of Scripture is closed, in the strictest sense, the office of prophet has ceased. However, in a very general sense, a prophet is one who takes what God has spoken and proclaims it. We can look at preaching today as a general sense, a form of prophecy, in that God has spoken. We don't have new, brand new, fresh revelation coming into us. We have got all we need, all that God has given right here. We take what God has spoken, and then we relate that to God's people. That is prophecy in a general sense. That is prophecy that ought to continue via preaching. It also says here, Prophets and teachers. And the way the, the grammar is constructed there, it, it's really not two different offices. It's, it's one office doing the same thing. Prophets and teachers together. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4.11 when he talks about pastor teachers. Here we have prophet teachers. Uh, a teacher in the, in the New Testament sense is a spirit-filled leader providing instruction in the Scripture. And so you've got people proclaiming God's Word in preaching and also explaining God's Word and applying God's Word in teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says, The elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. Two different things combined into one office. That's the authority there in the early church, and that's the authority in the local church. To preach and to teach is to bear authority. Not by, and understand this, not by virtue of a title or by virtue of an office. Authority is by virtue of God's authoritative word. As a preacher preaches God's word, as a teacher teaches God's word, as, as long as it is in connection to, and as long as it is true to God's word, it is authoritative. That preaching, that teaching is the word of God. The authority in the local church we also see in verse 1 the diversity in the local church. The Antioch church was quite a melting pot of culture in its time. How do we know that? Let's look at the individuals it speaks of in verse 1. It says there were prophet teachers there, and it mentions Barnabas, first of all, and Saul at the end. What do we know about Barnabas and Saul? These two men were Jews. They were Jews. In fact, the earliest Christians, were only Jews. It might come as a surprise to some, but Christians, the Christian church, started out as only Jews. 
They were Jewish. Paul and uh, later named Saul and Barnabas. They were Jewish. But we read earlier in chapter 11 how the Antioch church began to reach out not only to Jews but also the Gentiles in their community. And we see three more names listed here that quite possibly, most likely, these three guys were not Jews. They were Gentiles. We see Simeon listed who was also called Niger. Niger in, black, uh, Niger in Latin means black. He was a black man. We also read in here that there was Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is modern-day Libya, northern Africa. And then we also read about this fellow named Menaean who was, who was brought up with, raised up with Herod the Tetrarch. He was raised in the same home, a foster brother of Herod uh, the, the, the king, the Jewish king. And so we see Jews, we see Gentiles, we see this fellow Menaean raised up in the same home as the king. And so we see ethnic diversity, we see social diversity, but we also see the commonality of faith in Christ that unites and brings these people together. The early church, ethnically, socially diverse. And we see in the early church the call of Abram in Genesis chapter 12 that through his descendants, which Paul says is Christ, that through Abraham's descendant Christ, all the families of the earth are blessed. And then Jesus gives the great commission to go to all the world and baptize for all the nations. The call of Abram in Genesis 12 is fulfilled in Christ in the preaching of the gospel in Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 through 20. Diversity in the local church. Is there diversity in today's church? Martin Luther King back in 1960 said, the most segregated place in Christian America, the most segregated hour in Christian America is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. And that was back in 1960. Has that changed very much today? You see a lot of racial diversity in our congregation. Uh, I, I would hope to think that's not intentional. I would hope to think that we would be open to, but, but what are we doing uh, to address that matter? Is, is our gospel from, from Ephesus is only for people that look like us? Or is it for all nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation? We ought to be praying about that. We ought to be examining that and, and seeing what we as a church in America ought to be doing to fix it. Because when we get to heaven, not everybody's going to look like us. Not everybody's going to dress like us. Not everybody's going to speak like us. There's going to be great diversity in heaven. Why do we not see that in the local church, in the body of Christ? There was diversity in the local church. There was ministry in the local church. Verse 2, they were doing what God commanded the church to do. It says, while they were ministering to the Lord, they were ministering. Who was ministering? I believe the whole congregation was. Not just the five fellows it, it mentioned by name. How do we know that? Because Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 that God gives the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers for what? For equipping the saints, the saved people, for the work of ministry. According to Paul's revelation from God, the office of leadership was to equip the rest of the church to do the work of ministry. That meant everybody in that church was ministering. 
Is everybody in this church ministering? Is, does everybody have a job? Does everybody have a role to play? You might think, there's, there's not much I can do. What I, the only thing I can do is insignificant. It's not insignificant if it is, as this verse says, to the Lord. Because when you serve and when you minister in the New Testament sense, you are not just serving others. You're not just serving for your own benefit. To do it right, your service, your ministry is to the Lord. What is your motivation to do what you do in the local church? Do you do anything in this church? You ought to. You're supposed to. What are you doing, if anything? And if you're doing anything, who are you doing it for? They were ministering to the Lord. Ministry in the local church. Also, humility of the local church. In verse 2, it says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Fasting. I believe they realized their source for power and their source from direction came strictly from God. And they were willing to do whatever they needed to do to humble themselves and prepare themselves to receive direction and power from God. And whatever they had to do to receive that, they were willing to do that, willing to sacrifice, and that took the form of fasting. It's not something we hear taught a lot in churches today. Guess, guess what? You're about to hear a lot of teaching about it in the days to come. Rhonda's been teaching us about spiritual disciplines on Wednesday nights. Guess what's next? The topic of fasting. Most of us think about fasting, we think about not eating, you know, whether for medical purposes or dieting purposes. But here is what uh, Richard Foster says about Christian fasting. He says, It's the voluntary denial of a particular activity for the purpose of intense spiritual activity. It's setting aside something you normally do, whether it be eating or, or another activity, setting that aside temporarily to focus on uh, intense time of spiritual growth and development. They were willing to fast so that God could speak to them and they might follow His direction. I have sensed in my spirit for some time now, and I've shared this with some of y'all on different occasions, I have sensed in my spirit for some time now that God is calling our church to proclaim a fast. And what does it look like to fast? We're going to hear some more about that here in the next coming days. And once we receive that instruction and once we continue to pray about this, how we're going to implement this practically, we will be doing that soon. Just like in the early church, humbling themselves, readying themselves to hear from God. There was humility in the local church, which led, I believe, to the next thing, sensitivity of the local church. Sensitivity, I don't mean somebody getting their feelings hurt and going boo-hoo and crying home to mommy. That's not what I mean by sensitivity. I mean the ability to sense God's leading at a particular time and for a particular purpose. Because they ministered to the Lord and because they fasted and they prepared themselves, they were sensitive to what God was telling them to do next. They were sensitive to God's direction. We see that in verse 3. It says, As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This is the beginning of what we know as the first missionary journey in the Christian church. 
as we read about in this chapter moving forward in the next couple of chapters, Paul and, and Barnabas going into uh, Cyprus, going to Asia Minor, telling other people the good news of Jesus Christ. And this happened because the church was sensitive to the voice of God. Because notice what it says here. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, God said, this is what I want your church to do. This is who I want set apart. This is what I want them to do. The Holy Spirit said this. If that church was not sensitive to what the Holy Spirit said, would they have heard the voice of God? Would the first missionary journey have taken place? How different would the course of human history be if that church was not sensitive to what God was saying to them through the voice of the Holy Spirit? They were ready to hear the voice of God, and when God spoke, they heard it, and they followed it. The Holy Spirit said, Set these men apart for the work I have called them to do. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit today, He still comforts, He still convicts, and He still counsels, but He never does these things contrary to Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. The Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will never tell you to do and lead you to do anything contrary to this book. So as we as a church are sensitive to the voice of God and we sense God calling us to do something, we better examine what we believe God's calling us to do by this Word. If it's contrary, it ain't from God. We better not do it. But if it's complementary to what Scripture says we ought to do, then guess what? We'd best do it. We need sensitivity to the voice of God like was presence in the church of Antioch. We also see unity of the local church in our text, the unity. They were rallying together as a church family for God's kingdom work. Verse 3, Then when they had fasted and prayed, they wanted to make sure, God, we, we, we think you're calling us to do this. We better make doubly sure. So they fasted and prayed, and they, and they found the affirmation they were looking for, and they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. They laid their hands on them as, as a form of a commissioning service. We recognize God has set you apart, you two individuals, for a specific function. We recognize what God is calling you to do. We, we agree with that. We lay hands on you, imparting our blessing on you, and we send you forth as members of our church to go forth and proclaim the gospel wherever God tells you to go. There was unity in this. It says they sent them away. I don't think it was just the five fellows mentioned here. I believe the whole church sent them away as representatives of the church of Antioch wherever they went. They were still representing that local church. You know, even today we have Southern Baptist missionaries all over the world and we give the Lottie Moon offering to support their missions work. Every single missionary that's appointed by the IMB and sent out is a member of a specific local church. Every single missionary. You can't be appointed and sent by the IMB unless you have a specific church membership in a local church. That's the New Testament pattern. We still follow that today. At least we ought to. Every Christian ought to be plugged into a local church body. Paul and Barnabas were sent out 
by the church of Antioch. There was unity. The entire church understood the importance of missions and evangelism, and they collectively sent them out. There's something about rallying around the cause of Christ. There's something about rallying around missions and evangelism and understanding that's priority. There's something about that that unifies a church. There's a lot of little things that can chip away at unity, but when we rally together around missions and spreading the gospel, there's something about that. And when we participate in that, something about that that unites our hearts more tightly. Unity in the early church and local church. There was also mobility of the local church. They were extending outside the four walls of the building. I don't know if the Antioch church had a specific building. It was probably someone's house. Church buildings, per se, didn't come in vogue for the next couple, 200 years, 300 years. But in the early church, they met in homes. But they went outside the walls of that building wherever they were assembled to spread the gospel. The Antioch church was already committed to reaching their neighbors. We read that in chapter 11, remember? They were already committed to reaching their neighbors. Now they were committed to reaching the nations. We read this in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Now notice that. The end of verse 3, the church sent them away. Verse 4, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. It was God working through the ministry of the local church making this happen when the church does what God's calling the church to do it's not the church doing it it's the Holy Spirit doing it if the Spirit of God tells us to do something we do it it's not us doing it because we ain't doing it in our own power we don't do it for our own glory we do it for His there is mobility they sent them out and they went they were sent and they went the mobility of the local church. They understood they needed to cross geographical boundaries. They needed to cross cultural barriers. They needed to go to all the nations to fulfill the command of Christ in the Great Commission. There's no other way to do that. We need mobility. And I pray that you will join me in praying that God will call out pastors, preachers, missionaries, from our church family. Join me together in praying for that, that God would call out men, women, boys, and girls from our church family to go into the pulpits and to go into the nations and make Christ known. There was mobility in that church. There ought to be mobility in every local church. There was activity. We see the activity of the local church. Whether at home or abroad, there was one thing essential. And as soon as they got to Salamis, verse 5, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the Word of God. That was what was essential. That was the activity of that church. That's the only way people can be saved. Romans 10, 13, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Paul begins to unpack that. How can they call on one whom they don't believe in? How can they believe in one whom they've never heard? How will they hear unless somebody tells them? How will someone tell them unless they are sent? And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? You see, we can go in reverse. 
What we're called to do is send people. And when people are sent, they begin to speak. And when they speak, people hear about Jesus. When people hear about Jesus, they begin to believe in Christ. And when they believe in Christ, they will then call upon Him. And when they call upon Him, they will be saved. It all begins with telling people the Gospel. That's the only way. You see, there's a difference between Christian missions and Christian ministries of mercy. Both are important. But if the only thing we're doing is we go into the nations, if the only thing we're doing is supplying needs physically, and we're digging wells, and we're giving supplies, and we're building houses, those things are important, don't get me wrong. Christians ought to be at the forefront of works of mercy. But if that's all that we are doing, we ain't doing missions. We're just making people more comfortable on their journey to hell. We must speak the good news of the gospel. Paul did that wherever he went. We see this later in the chapter. Look in chapter 13, verse 29 through 32. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross they laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for your sins, his resurrection from the dead to give you eternal life, and the necessity of faith and repentance. They proclaimed the Word of God. If we don't proclaim the Word of God, we are not being faithful to the call of God. We are not doing missions. We're not doing evangelism. Proclaiming the Word of God. Finally, we see opportunity for the local church. There was opportunity back then. And we see what happens when church and culture collide. When the gospel meets lost folks out in the community and out in the world what happens we see a story here we won't go into great detail of it verses 6 through 12 we see them encountering a fellow named Sergius Paulus he was a proconsul he was a Roman leader he was a man of intelligence and guess what they witnessed to him the boldness and the courage they weren't scared he was a man of influence they weren't scared he was a man of intelligence the faith doesn't mean you need to sacrifice your brains to believe in it. They approached him with the gospel, but however, when they did that, there was another fellow there. We read in verse 6, his, his name was Bar-Jesus, means the son of Joshua. It says he was a magician, a Jewish false prophet, and it says that he began to uh, oppose them, verse 8, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So what happens when we go and share the gospel? There's going to be opposition. Satan doesn't want us reaching lost people. He doesn't want people getting saved and baptized. He makes him mad enough to spit. Watch Imani get baptized today, slapped in the face of Satan. He hates it. And anytime we go out into the world and tell people about Jesus, there's going to be opposition. We better expect it, but we also need to look at it as opportunity. Paul pronounces a curse on this fellow calls him a son of the devil in verse 10. Paul understood this wasn't just a human being opposing them. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. 
Paul understood it was the devil that worked through this man causing division or, or, or causing an obstacle to the faith. Paul curses him with blindness. Temporary blindness falls upon him. And then verse 12, the pro, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at what? The teaching of the Lord. It wasn't just the miracle that drove this man to faith. The miracle was important and validated the message, but it was the message. It was the preached gospel that touched this man's mind and then ultimately his heart. And he believed. And so as we go into the culture, we can look at the world today and we can just wring our hands over how sinful culture is today. I can't believe them folks out there are so wicked. You see what, the, you see what they're doing? You see the, the, the stuff they listen to, the way they speak, how they dress, the, and, and the stuff they get involved in? I can't believe. Oh, I can't believe. We can look at it as an obstacle or we can look at the culture today as an opportunity because there's all kinds of lostness out there. There are all kinds of people out there that need the Lord. There is opportunity. The fields are ripe for the harvest. And our perspective, how we look at it, we can either look at it as them problem-causing heathens out there, or we can look at those people as, as reminders to us, but by the grace of God, so go I. It is an opportunity, folks, all around us, every day. Hey, we come into contact with people that need the Lord. It is so obvious. And I would argue that the world today, the culture around us today, especially here in America, it mirrors the culture of the pagan world that the early missionaries went into. And if Paul and Barnabas and the early missionaries found success preaching the gospel to them heathens, if we go out and we preach the same gospel, should we not also expect the same results? As Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It's not about your presentation, your charisma, your knowledge, your ability. It's about the Word of God. It's about the gospel. You proclaim it in its pure form and let the Spirit of God do the work only He can do. There is opportunity, folks. And I want us to understand that. I want us to embrace that this year and beyond. Look at the culture around us. It's just going to hell in a handbasket. There is opportunity. There are a lot of lost folks out there. There is a lot of opportunity for us to take the good news of Jesus to the world. And for Ephesus to reach its God-given potential, we must continually obey the Word of God. We must continually obey the voice of God as He speaks to us via the Holy Spirit, confirmed by the Scripture. We've got to do what God wants us to do, what God tells us to do. It's the only way our church will be healthy spiritually. Speaking of healthy, over the Christmas break, I was watching on TV the Strongman competition, the world's strongest man. Y'all ever seen that? comes on ESPN sometimes and there's these, these gigantic fellas, these mountain of, of men and, and they're picking up just ungodly amounts of weights. They're picking up uh, jeeps and, and they're tossing these great big boulders up in, their air, up in the air over their heads and you're just like, I cannot believe a man would be that strong. But you ever stop and think about how do they keep that fair? You know, they're, they're supposed to pull this thing a certain distance, they're supposed to lift some. How do they keep it fair? Well, they, they weigh and they measure each of these items. 
Do you know there's such a thing called the International Bureau of Weights and Measures? How do you know how much a, a pound is? How much do you know how much a, a gram is? Well, there is a set standard that's used the world over. That's how they keep those things fair. They use the standard of measurement. Folks, when we think about church health, we think about our congregation. How do we measure our health? The bottom line is this. Scripture sets the standard for success. If you want to know whether or not our church is healthy, if you want to know whether or not our church is successful, the measuring stick we need to pull out is the Scripture. It's the Bible. And we need to take the narrative portions of Scripture and line them up with the, the teaching portions of Scripture. And when we find continuity and consistency between the two, we take examples like this and we follow them. Right before us today in this text is a paradigm, a powerful paradigm for our church. Folks, you and I would do well to look at the church of Antioch, measure our church against it, and see what we need to do to position ourselves to be in a place they were to find the success that God granted. Let's pray.